I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. Earlier this year, the Federal Office of Civil Rights proposed new regulations designed to combat the overrepresentation of students of color in special education. The move reflects a widely shared belief that schools across the United States tend to over-identify children as disabled based on their race or ethnicity. But is that belief correct? Could it be that black and Hispanic students are actually less likely to be placed in special education than their white peers, and therefore less likely to receive services to which they're entitled under federal law? That's the provocative argument advanced in a new post on the EdNext blog. I'm Marty West, Editor-in-Chief of Education Next, and I'm joined today by the authors of that post, George Farkas of the University of California at Irvine and Paul Morgan of Penn State. They've been studying overrepresentation in special education for nearly a decade, and I think it is fair to say that their findings have shattered the conventional wisdom on the issue. George, Paul, thanks for taking the time to talk about your work. Pleasure to be here. Great to be here, Marty. Now, as I suggested, your findings really do run counter to beliefs that are widely shared by policymakers and even by many scholars. So let's be clear about exactly what you're saying. You're not calling into question data showing that, as a descriptive matter, students of color are more likely than white students to be in special education. In fact, you acknowledge in the post that black children represent just 14% of the school-age population, but 19% of students in special education. But you also argue that this is not the right way to look at the issue of over-identification. Why is that the case? Uh, well, I think there's two things that are operating here, and one is um, an observation, and another is an inference. So the observation is that um, relative to, say, the population representation in the general school age uh, population, uh, minority children may be more likely to be placed into special education. Um, for example, as you as you cite, um, black children represent about 14% of the school age population, but about 19% of the special education population. So there's been an observation of a difference large enough to sometimes be characterized as a disparity. The other side of, uh, of kind of this uh, uh, examination is, is why that's occurring. So there's the observation, and then there's the inference. And the inference is, is that it, that is because of widespread misidentification based on children's race or ethnicity. So that the reason that, um, say, black children are more likely to be in special education is because of a, a racial bias that's widespread and operating in the way that children are identified as having disabilities. So we're not contesting the sort of descriptive observation of, of a disparity, we're trying to more rigorously and systematically investigate um, underlying explanations of why that might be, uh, might be occurring, or, or if we look at children who are displaying the same relative um, need for services, who's more or less likely to receive the services, which is really the proper way to investigate whether there's some sort of racial bias that may be operating in the way that children are identified as having disabilities. So how do you go about uh, addressing that question about what the inference actually is? Yeah, yeah, right. So, you know, it's just to kind of give a couple of examples. 
um, minority children are, are, are twice or three times as likely to have asthma um, than white children. And minority children are two to three times as likely to be receiving Head Start services or Title I services. Now, that's an observation. Um, the, uh, an inference might be made, well, physicians are racist or um, Head Start has a racial bent. But a contrary explanation is minority children, because of underlying structural inequalities and inequities, are more likely to be exposed to risk factors for, say, disability or asthma or need for compensatory, compensatory services offered through Head Start. So if you really want to know whether racial bias is operating in, within um, kind of program receipt or identification or diagnosis, the proper way to do that, and this has been, you know, widely, widely acknowledged, including by a National Research Council report in 2004, the proper way to investigate for the potential of racial bias is to compare children who are otherwise uh, similar, kind of like you have a kind of factual condition with an RC, a randomized control trial, to better isolate the potential explanatory um, factor. And so that's what you've been doing now with uh a number of nationally representative data sets, that's correct, uh, sort of trying to predict the probability that students will be uh, identified for special education um, based on their race or ethnicity, but while right. adjusting for everything else that we can see about their family background and especially the level at which they're performing academically. That's right. That's right. So what we want to do is, is kind of, there are multiple explanatory factors involved. And what we want to do is kind of take away other competing explanatory factors to better isolate the effect of potential racial bias or discrimination. And so we control for a wide range of um, other explanatory factors and then look at what are the relative differences between children who are displaying, in essence, the same uh, relative need uh, for services um, but may differ on their race or ethnicity. And when we do that, we consistently find that white children relative to um, otherwise similar children who are racial and ethnic minorities are consistently more likely to be receiving um, um, services and to be identified as having disabilities. And we've observed that again and again and again, uh, whether it's before or after school entry, whether it's using parent or teacher report of, of disability, um, whether it's looking at special education generally or across a range of disability conditions. So that we've repeatedly replicated the finding, and it also turns out the findings are completely consistent with what the public health researchers have been reporting for some time, in that, uh, if anything, it's, there seems to be widespread under-identification and under-treatment of minority children, even when displaying the same clinical need. So this sort of actually flips the conversation on its head. Rather than identifying a potential concern with the over-identification of minority students, you're raising the possibility that maybe they're not getting services for which they're eligible and from which they might benefit. Based on their race or ethnicity, that's correct. So uh, as I mentioned, you've, uh, or you mentioned, you've replicated this uh, a number of different times. What are the data sets that you've been able to work with? And are you sure that they're the right ones that allow us to look at this picture nationally? Well, we've used the data that are collected by the National Center for Education Statistics specifically for education researchers. And um, the, these data sets 
tests, which are known as the Early Childhood Longitudinal Study um, and the National Assessment of Education Progress, are the ones that most scholars use when they do education research. They're the ones most widely used in the published articles in the field. Uh, they're the ones that you read about in the newspaper when they talk about achievement gaps or um, how U.S. students in fourth grade are doing on science. Um, these are the same data sets that all the scholars in the field use. Um, the nice feature of these data sets is that they are nationally representative. So the Nas National Center for Education Statistics went to a lot of trouble to sample um, all the schools in the country and then to sample students from those schools. Um, some of these data sets are also very large and therefore you can go into a lot of detail in what you're trying to study. But the most important thing about these data sets is that they have standardized test scores on them. Um, once again, NCES um, went out of their way to provide accurate um, and unbiased um, assessments of the children's performance in reading and math and science. And the, they, they invented tests based on test score items that have been widely used professionally. And they studied the psychometric properties of the tests to be sure that the items, that is the test items, weren't biased by race or social class. And um, these test scores were administered to the children, um, and they had as much time as they needed. And uh, on one data set or another data set, this um, represents children from kindergarten up through 12th grade. Um, it also, one of the data sets, the ECLS, follows the same children over time. So you can see what happens to a kid as they get older and, and go up through the grades. Because the test scores are there, we can make children otherwise similar on their classroom performance in terms of knowing reading and math. And therefore, we're able to compare statistically um, a typical child who is white with a typical child who is black, who are both doing the same level of performance on a reading and math test. And one of the most striking things to me about your article is the extent to which it appears that achievement really is the key factor in predicting whether students are identified for special education or not. That's right. I think that's really important. Um, these tests and these data sets are not shared with the schools. This is something that the NCES collects and makes available to researchers. So the people in the schools do not know what a kid's score is on these tests. But all the kids in a given study took the same test at a very similar time. So this is a test of who are they putting in special ed? And the answer is they're putting in special ed the kids who perform 
at the really bottom of the test score. So you're looking, you know, if you if you take the test scores and you start with the kids who scored the 5% lowest in the country, those are likely the kids that are sitting in class and not learning. And those are the ones you would hope would be more likely to be put into special ed. And that's exactly what the data show. So let's turn to talk about the federal government's efforts in this area to combat what it perceives to be the problem of overrepresentation of students of color in special education. So they've taken this um, observation that there are more black students and Hispanic students uh, identified for special education and made the inference that this may be evidence of discrimination uh, or bias in the identification process. What have they told states that they need to do about this? Right. Well, the department has, I mean, an understandable uh, sort of motivating concern is they want to make sure that children who do not have disabilities are not being identified as um, having disabilities. But at the same time, it's important to strike a balance so that children who do have disabilities are receiving additional help that's guaranteed uh, to them. Uh, the, the way that the issue has typically been studied is really just more or less at the descriptive level, um, using the kind of disparities logic that we talked about at the start of just looking at relative proportions in the population. And despite criticism from a National Research Council expert panel in 2002, the department really has simply continued to rely on descriptive data and has made an inference based on that data without considering other explanatory factors. And in the latest proposed regulations has continued um, along this line in which they're asking states to monitor the extent to which there's significant disproportionality using a standard method of a relative risk ratio. And then we'll work with states to establish what the department ultimately would consider as reasonable sort of quota-like thresholds for how much overrepresentation would be allowed before funding would start to be reallocated away from children with identified disabilities through Part B of IDEA to, in an attempt to deliver um, coordinated early intervening services to children as a way to, uh, to help reduce um, special education um, disparities. So as I understand it, this is taking language that Congress actually included in the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, what we usually refer to as IDEA, that uh, required states to monitor the extent of minority overrepresentation in special right. education. And, and the Obama administration's Office of Civil Rights is saying, well, here's now what we think Congress means by that. You need to monitor it uh, and actually ultimately set thresholds that you'll then use to um, decide whether there's a problem or not. Right. Well, it, what the, the problem that Congress is concerned about is significant disproportionality based on children's race or ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And y y if you want to know whether it's because of the child's race or ethnicity, you need to make the children somehow similar in their relative clinical needs. And only when you're examining children that are displaying the same relative clinical needs and you find that minority children, say, are more likely to be identified, then you have some sort of evidence of, of racial bias, of inappropriate. That's the motivating concern of the department, inappropriate identification based on race and ethnicity. 
And the expert panel that I referred to in 2002 reported that, you know, if we really want to know whether there's racial bias in, this, in the way that children identified as having disabilities, which is, you know, is an important concern, um, the right way to do that is to use the kind of data that we've been analyzing, the Eccles K or Eccles B or the other NCS data sets that George refers to, in which we compared the children based on, say, their academic achievements. Um, those data are just as well available to the Department of Ed as they are to us and could be used to help monitor for this problem that they're concerned about. But they, they have no, as far as I can see, have really made no effort to consider other explanatory factors before inferring that the initially observed disparities are due to racial bias and mis widespread mis misidentification based on race. And that's just not the right way to do it methodologically, and that's well known. The logic of the regulation seems very similar to uh, approaches the department has taken in the area of student discipline, right? Uh, concerned about disproportionate, disproportionate impact of exclusionary discipline on students of color, critics of those regulations, which are trying to uh, get districts and states to look at those rates across different student uh, groups, suggest that that ignores the possibility that the underlying behavior is different uh, and that that explains any disparities. Um, that conversation is fraught because we don't have very good data on actual students' behavior, but you all have access to actually very good data on uh, demonstrated clinical need for special education services and really allows you to address this in a more direct way. That's right. And uh, just as a reminder, you know, the reason that children receive special education is because their, dis their disabilities are adversely affecting their educational performance. And a major indicator of that is academic struggles. So um, it's, it's appropriate to use children's relative ability to read or do mathematics or other indicators of their school functioning academically to consider whether the child ha potentially has a disability. And what we repeatedly find is that once you compare children who are similarly achieving, um, uh, white children are, are, are consistently more likely to receive um, special education. Just as like has been recently reported, if you look at similarly high-achieving students, white children are more likely to receive gifted ed. So we're observing the same phenomenon at the sort of the other end of the continuum on the academic uh, distribution. And it really speaks to the same thing of which, which children um, who uh, are racial and ethnic minorities are underserved and not uh, uh, at least in terms of our observations, not able to access in the same way potentially beneficial services um, as easily as white children. And this has been repeatedly observed in the public health literature where um, uh, minority families and their children are just not as easily able to access uh, 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 treatment for uh, health conditions that can really be quite deliberate, um, have quite an impairment on their functioning. Um, so, so and we've observed this across many different conditions. I know that there's sometimes some concern that with, within more what are sometimes called sort of judgmental conditions like um, behavioral disorders, for example, or intellectual disabilities, that there might be some um, role played by teacher bias in those um, patterns of identification. We actually don't find that. We find consistent evidence of under-identification in, in service receipt across really any disability condition we've looked at so far, including those two. So it seems to be a fairly systemic problem.
So your comments just now and a lot of your writing frames the issue as a problem of uh, black and Hispanic students and American Indian students being under-identified for special education and therefore being denied services from which they may benefit. But could it also be the case that white students are actually being over-identified? Well, if that, if that were the case, then there would be lots of white students who are performing just fine on these tests who are nevertheless put in special ed. And that isn't what we find. We find overwhelmingly that when you look at the kids with the very lowest, the very bottom of the test scores, which basically means that they, they simply were below basic in their ability to read or to do simple math, um, their chance of getting put into special ed is very, very high. But as soon as you go up the test scores, the chance of getting put into special ed uh, goes down and down and down so that it's minuscule. So that is one uh, piece of evidence that the teachers and the schools, and of course it's a process, um, being put in special ed requires an IEP with individualized educational plan, which um, is created in a meeting with teachers and the school psychologist and the parents. And if the parents simply refuse to have the kid receive special ed services, then that's the end of it. The kid does not receive special ed services. So this elaborate process, which is, you know, has many steps to it and includes parental control from the data is doing the job of putting the kids who are most in academic need um, into the category where they get some extra help. And so uh, that suggests a potential explanation for some of your patterns, which is that some parents may be better positioned to navigate that process that you rightly describe as uh, complex and putting some degree of burden on the parent to navigate it successfully. That's right. These services are, are quite costly to provide, and um, it's about 90 to 100% more costly to provide special education services on average than general education services. And schools often have to pay that cost, and it, 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 if anything, are reluctant to provide the additional services because of their cost. Most of the response that we've gotten from our work from um, from families and uh, th those who are working with minority um, populations to try and assist them, um, you know, re report to us again and again that, that schools are, are disinclined to provide the services, and it takes quite a bit of effort, um, including oftentimes legal action, for parents to secure these additional services. Um, we, we don't find much evidence that schools are sort of um, eager to provide <laughs> costly special education services to children, and that instead there's quite a bit of a, of a process, sort of a um, uh, many, many meetings and many different sort of evaluations, and it's a multidisciplinary team that makes the judgments and oftentimes many different kinds of 
other explanatory factors are tried to take into account to so that children don't receive the services. So, um, yes, I think you're right, Marty, is that, if anything, the way that the system is currently implemented, it, 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 um, families that are better resourced um, may be able to navigate the process more easily. Uh, and so that speaks again to um, the need for the department to help ensure that um, all children in their families, regardless of their race and ethnicity, are able to access services to which they, the children may have a right to. So if I think it's also, if I could jump in, I think it's also useful to have uh, from the ground up view of what we're talking about because um, special education, the, the very words have a sort of stigma associated with them. And I think that often this discussion is had out of the context of, so what's it like to be a kid in this situation? And what's it like to be a teacher? And what's it like to be a parent? And when I look at what I've seen in, in schools I've been in, it seems to me that What's simply happening is that the classroom teacher is noticing that some kids are at the bottom of the class, and while everybody else is learning, these kids aren't learning. And they're way behind, and they're falling further behind every day. And, of course, that's feeding back to their own psychology that they can't do school, which is creating further impediments to their learning. The teacher identifies the kid to the school psychologist for testing, and the process begins basically because the kid was not able to learn um, or for some reason was not learning um, at the same rate and success as the other kids in the class. In the end, if the kid gets an IEP, what that means is a special plan is made for that kid, but in reality, there's only a few kinds of, quote, services that can be provided by an ordinary school and an ordinary teacher. And it comes down to putting the child for part of the time in a, a learning situation where the group is very, very much smaller than usual. So, you know, it's kind of like if the kid really needs it, let's give them a little more attention so that they can catch up with the others. But somehow that's never spoken about when people talk about special ed. Um, the Department of Education that runs, the, the part of it that runs special ed, seems to have the attitude that special ed is a bad thing and we should keep as many kids out of it as possible. Um, and by believing that all of this is about racism, they're basically just succeeding in denying these services to the kids who are falling behind, in particular, if they happen to be a minority. What's interesting to me about the narrative that you just provided, George, that really put uh, at the forefront the role of the teacher in the initial identification process is the way in which maybe biases, whether conscious or unconscious, could actually result in exactly the pattern that you all document in your research, which is that um, if teachers are uh, surprised that a student is struggling because he or she is a white student who they expect to succeed, they may be more likely to take that step than if it's for a student for whom, what, for whatever reason, they have lower expectations. 
Um, that's certainly possible. You know, so much of this discussion is really had totally devoid of the reality of the schools and the way things work. Um, as we know, sadly, our housing in the U.S. is still very racially segregated, which means that our schools are racially segregated, which means that most African-American students are in schools with a majority, or at least a very large minority, of other minority kids. So, in fact, it probably doesn't occur that often that um, white and African-American kids are directly compared to one another. What seems more likely is that if a group like African-Americans is more likely to be in poverty, then the kids are more likely to go to a school with a lot of peers who are in poverty, which means that in that school, the teachers are finding a class full of kids who are less well-prepared for school and have all of the issues that come with poverty. And so when they ask who is doing badly in the class, who is toward the bottom of the class, their standard for what it means to do badly um, is lower than it might be, um, well, lower and higher are hard to understand here. But the, the point is, if the average in the class is at the 30th percentile nationally, um, then you've got to be really, really low to look like you're um, at the bottom of the class. So one feature of, of this whole uh, situation um, seems to be that because minority students uh, tend to be congregated in schools with more low-income kids, which means that the average performance level there tends to be lower, you basically have to do worse in terms of how you're learning um, in order to be identified in such a school. And we have indeed found that um, in, in the schools with a higher percent of minority students, the chance of getting put into special ed is lower. Basically, you've just got to be worse in a school with an average performance that's below the national average. So, Paul, our time is short, but I wanted to close by asking you if quota-like federal regulations are the wrong way to ensure equity in special education, what would be a better way? Uh, well, the, I think the better way, what we want is to have all children with disabilities provided with high-quality compensatory additional services that helps improve their success in school and their excess over their life course. Um, and so we've got, we want, we want to look at sort of two things, one of which is who's being identified, and then the second thing is what are, what are we helping to provide those children who are identified? So our research is really at the, at the first question is, you know, are the things equal? Who's more likely to be identified? And we consistently find that white children are. So what should the department be doing and what should Congress be doing? And I think we need to make sure that we're um, identifying any potential barriers that can be disproportionately affecting minority families 
whose children may have disabilities um, that um, we want to make sure that we're helping. Um, so, you know, for example, the due process materials that, that, are, that are oftentimes given by states to families, the overwhelming percentage of those are not written at a level that many families can access. I think um, 95, 96 percent of the due process materials require some sort of college level work to be understood. Um, this emphasis on um, quota-like systems, I think ha schools have sort of naturally responded by saying we, c we can only identify so many children who are minorities f as having disabilities, otherwise we may be um, identified or, uh, as, as over-identifying, um, even though the basis for that identification might be valid. Um, so I think uh, making sure that families know what kinds of risk factors and symptoms um, and what kind of help that schools can provide for children who have disabilities is disseminated across all communities, I think um, um, can help. And, and right now there's really been very little attention paid to this. Unlike in public health, I would point out, public health has been much more concerned with making sure that um, minority communities have just as much access to um, um, health uh, information and treatments as uh, uh, white families. Schools, in terms of special education, the, the overwhelming message has been too much identification, over-identification. And so I don't think that we've done enough to make sure that all children with disabilities, regardless of their race or ethnicity, are being helped. Um, so, I, you know, we suggest some possible ways, universal screening, ensuring readability of due process materials, um, um, comparing children who are otherwise similar to monitor for the problem. And I think those mechanisms, as well as other school, school to community partnerships, um, are, are mechanisms that I really think we need to be considering more to, to actually ensure equity in IDEA. My guests today have been George Farkas and Paul Morgan. Their blog post on the right ways and the wrong ways to ensure equity in IDEA is available now at educationnext.org. George, Paul, thanks for the great piece and for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, Marty. So that's it for this week's episode of the Ednext podcast. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a moment to leave us a review. It really does help. Thanks, and we'll see you back here next week. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.